Tovetov Dmitry Valerievich, born in 1984, December 8. At the moment, a soldier of military unit 71718 of the 70th Motorized Rifle Regiment, which is stationed in the city of Shali, Chechen Republic, Russian Federation. I am serving under contract as a squad leader of the intelligence department of the intelligence platoon of the intelligence company. Right now, I am in captivity of the law enforcement agencies on Ukrainian territory. On February 24th, on the orders of my commanders, I crossed the border with Ukraine. While on the march, we have advanced to the city of Militopol, where we spent two nights. From there, we were advancing according to the task. We were supposed to advance to the city of Donetsk, where we would meet with the 150th Division and march together with them to the reservoir near the city of Kherson. On the way, we stopped for the night near the village of Chernihivka, where I received a task from the battalion commander to look around the route. We boarded an infantry fighting vehicle of motorized rifle company with a crew, and I was captured near the city of Ubushvo. I am here on the orders of my commanders, who initially told us that the civilian population will meet us here with a smile on their faces, and our task is to free the population from the Nazis on the Ukrainian territory. I saw nothing like that here. Previously, I served in other military units and divisions. Border unit in the city of Stavropol served in special forces. I have also served in the Wagner private military company that flew me to Syria to perform tasks there. I can only say this, but we were told that everything is so bad here that the civilian population is suffering from local authorities. All of it's not true.
The more you pray, the less you will panic. Oliver, um, how long can Mariupol hold out under these conditions? I have no idea, Francois. I mean, how can I know? It's hard to know really what exactly is going on there and how far into the city the Russians have come. The Ukrainian Interior Ministry did confirm that Russian forces were in the city and that there were street fights and small arms fire. But whether that's just in one area or in other parts, it's really hard to know. People from Mariupol who I met today here in Lviv said that they had seen Russian forces in the city. Actually, their decision to leave one couple that I spoke to was motivated by the fact that Ukrainian forces came to their building and said that the Russian forces were nearby, though they didn't stick around to see whether that was actually true. But certainly, it's not just bombardment of the city from far away. There is a ground offensive, we believe, going on, but we really don't know what the scale of it is. And it's all that harder to know now that the last journalists working for foreign media have left Mariupol. Evgeny Maloletka and Mstislav Chernov were evacuated by Ukrainian forces who told them that the Russians had them on a list, planned to capture them and make them record videos saying that all the images and text that they put out so far was fake. I'm sure you've seen these people's photos, videos and read their texts. And what was your, what's your reaction when you heard a minute ago Gustav Gressel sort of uh, second-guessing the resolve of uh, the Russian forces that are present in Ukraine? Well, the Ukrainian media, you know, is absolutely full of stories of Russians being demoralized, of Russians shooting at themselves in order to go to hospital rather than die, of Russians surrendering. There are also periodically briefings in Kiev given by captured Russian soldiers who talk about how much they regret what's happening or didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. But it's hard to know again how much all that is being exaggerated, um, how demoralized they are, because of course some of them are demoralized, that's for sure. But it's very easy to, if, especially if you want to boost a nation's morale, paint a picture as though that's really the, the scene across the board. I mean, I don't think there can be any doubt that this Russian offensive hasn't gone as planned it wasn't the blitzkrieg that Vladimir Putin was hoping for and the resistance from the Ukrainian side has been far more than what the Russians thought was going to happen and I think has even surpassed most Ukrainians' best expectations. But from there to say that the Russians aren't going to be able ultimately to achieve their objectives is a different matter entirely. They've got possible conscripts they can draw on, they've got possible foreign forces they can draw on, Belarus might get involved, they have got a much better funded and larger armed forces than what Ukraine has. And it's hard to know also whether or not what's going on, uh, you know, the fact that they aren't advancing now on Kiev or other places in the northeast, is this because they're stuck and they aren't able to do it? Or is this because this is a pause, they're getting their tactics together in order to better prepare the offensive when it comes? Uh, uh, perhaps a pause, Ina Sovsun, uh, your reaction? I mean, we're seeing the bombing of urban areas, demoralizing the population so, uh, by... <laughs> by shelling and preparing for another onslaught? Uh, or are the Russians bogged down? Well, I believe there is only one way to answer that question is to wait and see. We frankly don't know how to make a prognosis anymore, how to forecast what will happen. But what I can tell you for sure is as we understand 
the situation is not easy. We understand that we managed to stall Russians uh, on on way to Kyiv. Uh, actually, uh, your reporter was saying that about a week ago, Irpin was held 50-50 uh, by Ukraine and Russian. It has actually changed in favor of Ukrainian army within the last week. And as today, Ukrainian army reported they ha that they have retaken full control of a west uh, city of western of uh, or a smaller town west of, of Kyiv called Makariv, uh, which is again uh, has been going on to Russia and the Ukrainian side during the first three weeks. So I think the Ukrainian army around Kyiv is actually gathering forces and the Russian army doesn't know how to proceed here. And that is why they are asking the Belarusians to come in and help. And the Belarusians seem to be trapped because Lukashenko doesn't want to send the army here. Uh, there was a recent poll done in Belarus saying that 97% of people in Belarus do not want to fight with Ukrainians. We don't really have bad blood with Belarusians. We actually, like on the like we are on good terms on, in general, except for, for them having another crazy dictator that wants to destroy us. Uh, but uh, people in Belarus do not want to fight. But apparently Putin is pressuring uh, Lukashenko to send uh, Belarusian troops. Uh, apparently what we are reading into this is that he doesn't have enough forces in Russia internally uh, that can be used for, for further offensive in Kiev. Uh, again, he can be waiting for conscript. Uh, but conscript, as you, uh, your expert was saying, is not a very popular thing in Russia. And there, uh, Putin has actually been making claims that he didn't know that conscripts are being sent to war in Ukraine, which of course is nonsense, but, but he is truly afraid of saying that he will send conscripts uh, directly into the combat. Uh, so I think he's trying to find ways to bring in other forces without engaging, uh, you know, conscripts who do not know how to fight. Uh, but uh, it can be one of the ways uh, he ha will have to proceed because Belarusians have been going on and on about wanting to invade, but not going into the uh, into the country, and they don't have any combat experience as well. So uh, that is also true. Uh, so uh, ex I would say this: that except for Mariupol, overall Russians are doing very poorly on the ground, and the only thing where they have superiority is the air. And the air is, of course, the most scary thing. Like we go to bed every night and we know that the air raid siren will go on at some point during the night. And, and we know that they will try to hit yet another town, city, village in any part of Ukraine. Uh, it is uh, exhausting, but I wouldn't say it is demoralizing because no one is willing after this is willing to say, OK, let's surrender. I will tell you for sure that right now the general mood in Ukraine is we have to fight them back and kick them out of our country totally. This is the general mood. And and the, of course the, the airstrikes are terrifying, they're exhausting, but it doesn't lead to what Putin ex expected it would lead, you know, to the general sp spirit falling and uh, uh, people are actually even more willing to get engaged and to fight back. I was I was getting messages from Kharkiv. That's my native city. I grew up there. I graduated from school there. It's a largely Russian-speaking city. It has been under heaviest bombardment by Russians up until very recently. And I was getting messages from my former classmates saying, you know, please tell anyone you know that we don't want Russians in our city. We don't want to surrender. We will stay in the bunkers, in the, in the basements for, for weeks more, if need be. Just don't surrender. That was the general mood in Kharkiv. And luckily, Ukrainian army did, did push them further from Kharkiv and stop those uh, airstrikes by shooting down, down several Russian airplanes. Let, let me ask Gustav Gressel about this. It's, uh, uh, if you listen to Ina Sovsun, it's not going to plan uh, for, for, for Moscow. But then again, uh, let me play devil's advocate here. It, 
does it have to go to plan? I mean, uh, when a Western nation engages its forces in a foreign theater, um, it tries to limit as much as possible the number of casualties. Uh, does a body count matter uh, in Vladimir Putin's Russia as long as he's got the backing of the military? Well, if you remember how the Soviet Union collapsed, um, it didn't collapse because Gorbachev was such a nice guy. It collapsed because there was a coup d'etat, and uh, in the scene of the coup d'etat, uh, several factions in Moscow would not support uh, the hardcore forces that came out of the KGB and tried to take power, uh, and especially the Red Army. Well, units or the Red Army uh, based around Moscow didn't support the coup d'etat because they have been going through Afghanistan and they knew that if they would support these hardline forces, they would have to go to the Baltics and squash the independence movement. They would have to go to Poland uh, to squash the Solidarność government. Uh, and, uh, and the Poles already told them that they will have to fight this. And and it would be another war of occupation as they just have fought. And so they decided, well, no. And I mean, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union is Putin's drama. Uh, it's, it's the thing he didn't want to repeat. So um, yes, he's not the kind of humanist who, who really dearly cares for human lives. But on the other hand, he of course cares for stability of the system. Um, and, and that is, of course, hard to guess when he judges that uh, mounting losses are too big to bear for Russia as a society and for the Russian system as such, and that sort of uh, ongoing defeat or not victory. And that is his problem. He needs uh, to win while Ukraine just does not sort of needs not to lose the war. As long as Ukraine is not losing, they're winning. And as long as he's not winning, he's losing. Uh, and that poses a problem. And at, at a certain point, you might really decide, no, OK, uh, enough is enough. Uh, but it's, of course, hard to tell when, when that point will come. Or, uh, And as I said before, he's, uh, to my point of view, he's waiting for April. He's waiting to generate further forces. We've heard Belarus, which is, of course, not the most capable ally he can get, but it's the only ally he has, as, as all the Central Asian countries have said no to this endeavor. He, he tries to generate forces, and we will see, basically, by by next month, how much he will generate and how much they will send. Uh, and, and if the Ukrainians can blunt this, um, then I think we will we will start to approach uh, a time where Putin might think twice. But until then, I think he's just uh, playing for time and, and trying to generate new forces. And very briefly, Gustav, because we heard our correspondent Gulliver Craig mention how it is also an information war. Um, the U.S. this Monday saying it's gotten no independent confirmation of Russia's weekend claim that it fired hypersonic missiles at a Ukrainian target. A hypersonic missile is one that can hit a target up to 2,000 kilometers away. It flies at speeds of 6,000 kilometers an hour. But analysts in Washington don't see the point of using one in this conflict. What are your thoughts on that, Gustav? <laughs> Uh, well, there are, there are sort of many issues. So the military use of this, um, I mean, there are standoff missiles. And in Western Ukraine, the Ukrainian Air Force is still up and flying. And you have uh, uh, working air defense systems. Uh, on the attack on Lviv, uh, the Ukrainians shot down two out of eight cruise missiles that, that tried to hit uh, the airport. So it's a high-risk zone. So you, you, you the, the Russians resort for strikers, they are generally to standoff missiles. And, and uh, uh, the Kisal is, is, is one of them. 
Um, the thing is, the videos the Russian posted, the, uh, firing it, it's from an old test, and the video they posted uh, 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 saying that this is the strike on a Ukrainian armor dump is actually a strike on an old farm that has struck seven days ago or eight days ago. Uh, so we really don't know what they have struck and how precise it is. The problem with hypersonic missiles is that flying fast is easy. Hitting uh, something is the more tricky thing for such a fast missile. Um, the Kissel is a predominantly a nuclear strike weapon with a limited conventional role, uh, basically against aerial targets such as airfields. Uh, so we actually don't know, and the Russians have never published any reliable data what they actually hit or not. So I personally I wait for satellite pictures that really tell the truth of what they hit and where the craters are. Uh, I'm actually quite interested in that because it will be the first assessment of this thing hitting anything. All right, the bombing of uh, civilian targets, as mentioned uh, earlier by Ina Sovsun, uh, uh, it's happening in places like her native city of Kharkiv. It's also happening in the coastal city of Mykolaiv, where France 24's team filmed the aftermath uh, of uh, bombs hitting uh, an apartment block. Uh, further along, in the uh, Black, Resort, Black Sea resort of Odessa, as well, Odessa, where graphic designers, sales reps, IT staff find themselves learning how to handle weapons, uh, preparedness for a civil defense force in full swing. I work like a legal sphere and uh, just like um, uh, simple people, I don't know, like uh, me and my family. Uh, I don't dream or realize that I must to uh, take a gun. Ukraine is right now alone, and people who right now is watching it should understand right now war here, but it can be in your home, it's maybe with your friends and in your country. Gulliver Craig, uh, uh, we can't believe that there's war in Europe uh, right now. Uh, it sounds like Ukrainians can't believe it either. Your, your thoughts on uh, these white people who have these white-collar jobs and uh, are now learning how to use a gun. Yeah, well, I think everybody in Ukraine, really, most people in Ukraine were quite taken aback when this... I'm going gonna, gonna to cut you off, Gulliver, for a second because we're having a little bit of technical issues uh, uh, getting through to you. Uh, I'll, I'll put the question to Ina Sov soon. Uh, your, your thoughts on this? Well, uh, you know what? Uh, the first day of war... After the bombs exploded, the first bombs at 4:30 in the morning, uh, we all we were all so terrified. Uh, it's it's the scariest feeling ever. Like like you start caring about where is my son? I need to relocate him and and so on and so forth. But then uh, I couldn't cry. I I was I was scared, but I couldn't cry. But I actually cried the evening of that day uh, when I saw uh, one picture, a picture of hundreds of people staying in line in military recruitment offices signing up either for the regular army or for the territorial defense units. We have had over 100,000 people signed up for the territorial defense, which is voluntarily uh, in the first week of war. We have over 300,000 men who were living in Europe, but they returned back home to Ukraine with the single goal to defend Ukraine. Uh, 
This level of, of commitment is something that is so amazing to myself. I frankly speaking, even I didn't expect that. I'm looking at people in Kherson, in Melitopol, the, the cities that are currently under Russian control, and thousands of people go to the streets basically daily in order to protest and to say that this is Ukraine and we want Russians out. Like, can you imagine the courage of the people who just go there barehanded, uh, they're facing the tanks, and they say that we want you out. They say it in Russian, to, to mostly, and they say it to, to those Russian soldiers. Actually, today we had this it was a dramatic scene where the Russians opened fire on people on the street and they, they, they shot one uh, older man. We don't know his fate as of yet, uh, but, but this is what the people are doing. And, and many people are train, getting trained to use arms. Uh, many people are getting signing up for you know different volunteer activities. Like everybody right now is doing something for the army and for defense and for resistance, being be it surveillance, being humanitarian aid, being uh, signing up for territorial defense, like anything that people are willing to. We, people are so willing to contribute because we understand we are fighting for our lives here. We don't really have much of a choice. All right, war in Ukraine means fighting. Uh, Cyril Payen's long-form exclusive, The Battle of Irpin, Ukraine Diary, airs Thursday here on France 24. The war effort means more than fighting. For Ukrainians, there's the battle to boost spirit. about well this is a uh, uh, Bogdan Moura which is an artist and I come back to what was saying the uh, our guest about the sense of huge mobilization of the whole nation of Ukraine involving some uh, engineers some artists taking weapons and this uh, uh, Bogdan Moura which is in the West now in Lutsk when we took him back to his family was willing to go to Kiev because this is the place where he used to perform and what it was interesting is when we cross the country with him going into Kiev the first thing we the, the first place in this ghost city which is absolutely amazing it was three weeks ago already the city was uh, ghostly with checkpoints everywhere the first place where he wanted to go was a uh, artist residency where hundreds of artists in central Kiev are located uh, in central Kiev the name is hotel the people the artists were still here but they were just making uh, Molotov cocktails are building some barricades for uh, the civil uh, uh, territorial defense. So this is the whole point of this chapter, which is not obviously uh, prepared by Moscow and by Vladimir Putin. This is the whole nation engaging itself with the, the, with the weapons, the, the means they have into uh, the fighting. So the film is about this. Uh, civilians, these people getting involved, not leaving the country, trying to fight with their own means, and also in the front line in Erpin, where we spend one week, um, the impressive defense, sense of resistance of the people, 1,500 people from all fields, all generations, 
are here in the front line to prevent this huge military offensive to go in to this is the Northwest Gate entrance and extremely important uh, strategically to Central Kiev. And these people are just mobilized. They don't want to leave. They just try to help the evacuees. So this is uh, the, what is uh, all about, but which is really much reflecting this huge, again, immense sense of mobilization, national mobilization against the invasion. Yeah, and I think we have the connection back now with Lviv and uh, Gulliver Craig. Uh, again, Gulliver, this brings us back uh, when you hear Cyril Payan talking about those artists uh, who are now on the front lines uh, to that thing of, you know, one day you find yourself suddenly in a war. Yeah, well, some people in Ukraine, of course, were signing up for these territorial defense brigades. I presume I've got my normal voice back now in the weeks before the invasion started. But most people didn't really think that it would happen on this scale. The United States was issuing these warnings, evacuating its embassy, telling uh, uh, people, Americans to leave, and other countries also advised their citizens to leave Ukraine. And the Ukrainians were mostly reacting in a way quite irritated by this because it was damaging the country's economy. Even the president was saying things like that. And now we have the situation where almost everyone that I meet who I haven't seen since before the invasion started, people from Kiev who I run into here in Lviv, and there are so many of them, I asked them, well, did you think that this would happen? And they say, no, not on this scale. No, we didn't. We thought that it would happen in Donbass, in the east, maybe, or that there would be subversive actions in different parts of Ukraine, but not the full-scale invasion. Everyone thought that the United States warnings were over the top, and it turned out that they were basically completely right. Gulliver, earlier in the day, we had the German foreign minister saying that, because uh, right now we're at 3 million refugees from Ukraine in Europe, saying that number in the coming weeks could rise to 8 or 10 million. Do you have a, a sense of this mass exodus? Again, you're on that road that leads towards Poland and Slovakia. Well, there are people, and among them the people from Mariupol who I spoke to today, who certainly plan to move on and to leave the country. It's hard to quantify how many of them there are. I think that there are a lot of Ukrainians also who feel that it's their duty to stay and to keep this country running and to keep the economy going and to defend their country and also to help the people in need in the most badly affected cities to make their contribution to the humanitarian effort. So for the moment, the flow of people leaving the country, I think, has slowed. And I don't know where um, we get these figures of potentially eight or nine million. I mean, it obviously just depends on how the military situation evolves. I have heard of some people who are already saying they plan to move back to the cities where they came from, because although they're not entirely sure it's safe there, or perhaps they're pretty sure that it's not very safe there. They don't really want to move abroad and they can't indefinitely stay in dormitories or with relatives in places like Lviv. Ina Sofsun, uh, you're right now also in Lviv, uh, as you said, to, to see the family. Um, par Parliament, uh, uh, I don't know when the next session of it is, and right now there's that curfew. Your plan is to go back to the capital? Yes, definitely. I was actually, well, it's not sad, because again, here I can stay with, with my son, which whom I missed so badly in the first three weeks. I haven't seen him. But uh, the feeling that you want to be home you don't want to be forced to move by someone else is extreme. 
Like I have this feeling, I haven't been able to sleep in my own bed since the first day of war because I was either staying with some friends or then I came here uh, and uh, I didn't want to stay alone. That was uh, the, the first thing that my boyfriend who rejoined the army, that is what he told me, he said like you should always be with some other people, don't stay alone at home. Uh, and also I live in the north of the city, which was not safe for at least, at least for in the beginning. So I want to be home. I want to be where my stuff is, where the house that I was building, uh, where everything I know is. It feels very different right now. Like uh, the last week I was in Kiev, I was walking on the streets of Kiev and they're extremely empty. It does feel like a ghost city. Like I go to the supermarket and, and there is like a third of the selection we used to have before the war. Uh, the coffee shops are empty and so on. It does feel extremely sad, but also there is this very strong feeling that this is where we belong. This is our city, and and we want to be home. I think everyone can understand that. Just just try imagining that you are forced to live with one uh, piece of luggage and put everything that you own in one piece of luggage, and go nowhere and be nothing and not being able to work to support yourself or anything. Of course, people want to go home. I want to go home so very badly, and and I planning to go back home uh, and actually stay at my place uh, this time. Uh, just because it's so unfair what we are going through right now and it's so disruptive for the lives of so many people and of course i'm the lucky one because my home is is uh, safe there are i believe uh, hundreds of thousands of people whose houses have been destroyed they don't have a home to go back to we shall have to rebuild that all together after the victory after the victory you say uh, ina sovsun our thoughts uh, with you and your family uh, in these difficult times i want to thank uh, correspondent gulliver craig also in lviv uh, gustav gressel for joining us from berlin france 24's uh, cyril payan your full report uh, uh, on the front lines in earpin airs thursday right here on france 24 thank you for joining us here in the debate I entered the military service under a contract in the 15th motorized. I am Sergei Alexeyevich Galkin, born in 1987. I was born in the Zaratov region, live in the Samara region, the town of Roshchensky. In 2013, I entered the military service under a contract in the 15th motorized brigade, which is deployed in that town. The 30th motorized brigade is also stationed in this settlement. On February 1, 2022, the brigade in full strength marched to the loading station and advanced by railroad to the Bryansk region. On February 23rd, at about 10 a.m., the brigade commander, Lieutenant Colonel Marushkin, lined up all the personnel in front of the equipment of the entire brigade. On the general construction, he brought the order of the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, to invade Ukraine, seize the capital of Kyiv, supposedly protecting the population from fascism and tyranny, which are allegedly present in Ukraine. While we were on the march, we watched as heavy weapons fired salvos across the territory of Ukraine. Those were the heavy howitzers. The Iskander missile systems of the 92nd Brigade also fired volleys. Being in the captivity in the hospital, we constantly heard the heavy artillery from the Russian Federation, and also the planes carried out their bombardments. They dropped bombs on hospitals, schools, kindergartens, medical institutions. They dropped their bombs everywhere. The planes were coming one after another. They also fired from heavy flamethrower systems, from heavy artillery systems. The shelling continued endlessly. When we ended up in Ukraine, we realized that this is a real disaster, when many relatives, friends of Ukrainians, live on the territory of the Russian Federation. 
Here lives a peaceful, kind nation. It is beyond words that people are kind and everyone communicates with each other. It was a state of an unknown origin. It was a terrible state. It was a terrible feeling to realize what a mistake we had made. Simply understanding that all this has to be fixed. The relations have to be improved somehow. This will take more than one year. It will take decades, maybe centuries. I simply don't want to exist after all of this. After what's going on here. That's all. talking exclusively to the public broadcasters across the whole Europe and the whole world at this extraordinary time. My name is Angelina Kraikina, and I'm from the Ukrainian Public Broadcaster. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, to the world's public broadcasters, at this incredibly difficult time. Mr. President, thank you very much. Uh, first question, how are you? And can you tell us more about your personal life? I know it's not about you, that's what you're going to say, but we'd like to know, do you sleep well, do you have time for yourself, do you see your family, do you have time to read? First, how am I? I feel fine. I believe that I'm not sick, and I am a perfectly healthy man. I understand exactly what is happening. I make accurate decisions calmly. I think it's important for us to be very balanced now. Our military is showing its strength. It is also necessary to show balance, to remain strong fighters, to defend the state at the same time to show attitude even to the enemy, to show human attitude. 
It is very important for me that people see that we are defending our state. But I repeat, with a human face, that we do not torture people. We are showing that we are ready to defend, and not ready, so to speak, to win at any cost, because this is not a game. And so we are highlighting the difference between the people who came to invade our state, who came to our land. It is very important for us to show that our people are fighting in a civilized way. That is very important. I'm more focused because a lot of things depend on me. I want to give only the positive not in the sense of smiling, but positive in terms of my actions. And I do not want to harm any of our citizens. People are important because you see that the people themselves are defending our state. This means that they are our most important and possibly only treasure and protection. This is our Iron Dome. This is our security union. This is our people. Regarding what I read now, I don't read fiction right now, to be honest. I love it, but I understand that I can't. I read the first page, but then by the second, I'm already thinking about what's happening here. So I read the second page again, because I didn't take in what I had read there. Then I move on to the third and forget again. Because the head, the brain, are clogged up with other processes, other decisions, it's difficult to relax. Mr. President, uh, Ukraine is going through a very hard time, but also it seems united as never. Uh, do you think that uh, this historical change is taking place not only in Ukraine, but in, in the whole world, maybe maybe in Europe, uh, and what what is to be at the center of this historical change? The world will change. It has already changed. Politicians are already afraid of their people. They are afraid of social responsibility. They see that people are reacting differently. And in many countries, people support us 100%. But their leaders do not support us 100% for one reason or another. I'm not saying here who is right, but it means that social and public opinion will be stronger than any leader in the world. That is to say, we are all seeing changes in processes. Changes that lead not just to theoretical, but to popular democracy. Popular democracy is not a revolution. Democracy is first and foremost power of the people. If you want to be the leader of your society, you have to be the leader of society, not to command, but to be a leader and live with them in the same spirit. Therefore, it seems to me that this popular democracy is taking place in the world, and that this will lead to certain security alliances. 
I am confident that there will be new security alliances in the future. This does not mean that it's necessary to leave any union. It does not mean that it is necessary to destroy things that work. No, it does not mean that. People just want peace, tranquility, stability, and most importantly, confidence. Here, in all these challenges, confidence, be it the new COVID or, God forbid, war. A person who lives, pays taxes, who resides here, was born or came here, is a citizen of the world for peace. And this person must know that they must be protected in this country. And if this person leaves for another country, the person will be protected there. The person will not suffer. The world is facing just such a challenge. It will either accept this model and come to such alliances, or there will be a change of many world leaders and their societies will find proper people for themselves. Mr. President, I have a question regarding these alliances. Have you thought about not joining NATO, considering the war and all external threats that are incoming? In the Constitution, we have our intentions with NATO. There is ambiguity from NATO in relation to our acceptance in the alliance. There is clarity from some countries, which see us belonging there, and only with them. At a minimum, at least one-third of all countries do not see us there. Some of them will not say publicly that they'll accept us there. Most of them are afraid to talk about it publicly. That is why we need to revert to the previous question. They think that society will pressure them. Therefore, I think we need to divide this up into several approaches for this mighty challenge. In general, we need to find a format in which we have an understanding of whether Russia wants to stop the war. Otherwise, we may not get to all the rest. In principle, it concerns whether Russia wants it or whether Russia is even able to do it. If we understand that Russia is able to do it, or will face problems due to sanctions, internal pressure, conflicts within its borders, empty shelves at shops, or change of political elite, which are caused by the war against us. And we understand that all these things we have launched with our Western partners together, then we will have taken the first step towards the union needed in the world. 
by being united, we can stop any aggressor. In this moment, that is why I believe in my meeting with the President of the Russian Federation, in any format. I repeat it again, and I have repeated it and proposed it for several years. I know only one thing. Our future will not forgive us for the loss of our population. Our state will not forgive us for the loss of our people. Our future generations will not forgive us for the loss of our territories. They will ask us, what were we fighting for? I want to know exactly where we are. Who are our friends? And who doubts us? I'm not saying we have enemies in the West. No. There are people who are ready for anything on our behalf. But there are those who are not ready. That is all. Therefore, it is important when we talk about certain compromises. I said when I became the president that we cannot give up any part of our land because we must do everything for Donbass and Crimea to return. This is not a platitude. All our people believe and think so. The question now is when can we stop this war? There is no need for Russia to shout harsh rhetoric. We have an ultimatum. It will not lead to anything. We have an ultimatum. Here are the points. You will fulfill them, and then we will end the war. This is incorrect. It'll lead nowhere. The question doesn't concern only me. This question concerns the fact that the people and government are united. We're not all going to be able to do that. You can't do that with ultimatums. Ultimatums will not be fulfilled by Ukraine. We just cannot comply with it physically. We've lost people, our people. How can we do it? All of us would be destroyed. Then their ultimatum will be automatically fulfilled. For example, give us Kharkiv. Yes, for example, give us Mariupol. Give us Kyiv. Neither Kharkiv nor Mariupol nor Kyiv residents nor the president will be able to do this. And we even see it in the occupied cities, in Melitopol and Berdyansk. When they enter, people will notify each other. They raise the flag and people take it down. They killed a man, so people hid and came at night and removed the flag. Well, what do you want? To destroy everyone? That is why I said we will fulfill an ultimatum only when we do not exist. You can automatically capture this city. But you will live there by yourself. You will work there by yourself. People will either leave the city or those who cannot leave will fight to the end. Therefore, an ultimatum is a bad thing because it will lead to genocide and the destruction of the Ukrainian people. We are so energized now. Therefore, it comes down to dialogue. We are for peace. I repeat it again. Even no matter how difficult it is, it is better than war, 
And even though we hate these troops that are out there, the right word is negotiation. Negotiate however you can. But negotiate. Do not execute ultimatums. This is an important point. A compromise can be found in dialogue. For me, any compromises are relevant. Because, as you know, this hatred will be for every word, for every demand, for every course, for every guarantor of security, for everyone. You understand, right? Time must pass. Therefore, if they want to end the war, they must agree on a ceasefire, withdraw troops, then presidents meet, agree that troops are withdrawn, and that there are certain security guarantors. Here you can find compromise. There are certain guarantors of our security. They must say tomorrow that they are accepting Ukraine into NATO and not being unclear anymore. Or say, we're not accepting it now. That is true. And they themselves understand that they do not want to go with Russia, so they do not accept us. The answer is very simple. We already understand everything. We're not accepted because they are afraid of Russia. That's all. And we need to calm down and say that. Say, okay, we need other security guarantees. There are NATO member states that want to be the guarantors of our security, which unfortunately can't provide us full membership in the alliance, but are ready to do everything that the alliance would have to do if we were members of the alliance. And I think that's a normal compromise. It's a compromise for everyone, for the West, which does not know what to do with us in the NATO issue, for Ukraine, which wants security guarantees, and for Russia, which does not want to let NATO expand further, and says that it has had such agreements with NATO countries, with the West. And so, a compromise must be found in this, because this will be the end of the war. For Russia, this is not the end. There is this public letter, I don't know by whom, I don't remember by the Minister of Foreign Affairs or by the President of Russia. Stop talking to us with phrases like denazification, etc. We immediately said that this sounds like an ultimatum, and we do not tolerate this, because as soon as we're accused of Nazism by people who follow in the footsteps of Nazism, then we will not be able to tolerate it. Therefore, public rhetoric can be anything. It's the business of every state in this world. But this will not be binding rhetoric. Mr. President, a clarification. Where are Crimea and Donbass in this? They will come later. That's why I'm talking about approaches. I'll finish now. I think this is a very difficult narrative for everyone, both Crimea and Donbass. It will be hard to digest for everyone. And to find a way out, we need to take this first step, which is, as I've said, security guarantees, the end of the war. At the same time, 
we should also agree that we are resolving the issue of temporarily occupied territories. We have to resolve it, but after the end of the war. Why? Because everything is very hot, as I've said. Very hot. And so, this blockade will end. And after this blockade, please, let's talk. At the first meeting with the President of Russia, I am ready to raise these issues. They are relevant. For us, the occupied territories are important. But I'm sure that this decision will not arise in this meeting. Because there is, how do you say, if we're completely frank, we will have to talk about constitutional changes, changes in Ukrainian legislation when it comes to security guarantees. And if we talk about it, it will in any case be decided not only by the president, but, as it is quite a long process, by both the parliament and the people of Ukraine. And when I say the people of Ukraine, in these negotiations with the Russian Federation, we will still arrive to these negotiations as we've explained. I did not meet with Russian negotiators, but with our negotiating groups there. I explained to them, look, when you talk about certain changes, which might be historic, we will not avoid those. We will put them to referendums. The people will have to say and respond to some of the compromise formats you mentioned. But what they'll be is a matter of our conversation and understanding between Ukraine and Russia. I don't know. I don't. I have. I. I can tell you with whom I have uh, very many, too many connections. Not too many. No. I mean, <laughs> no, not too many. Uh, to be understandable, rightly. Ah, uh, I have many, a lot of connections with, uh, with uh, Dudam, Andrzej Dudam. I have many connections with uh, Macron. I have uh, connections, many connections, with Boris Johnson, uh -huh. uh, with our, I think, Baltic, Baltic countries. Okay, so oh. all are your preferred? With the amount of data stored in the cloud... <laughs> I would like to ask what you would say to Ukrainians when they see Russian troops through their windows, in their villages, towns. Also, in your interview to CNN, you mentioned that if negotiations with Putin fail, then there's a risk of World War III. What did you mean by that? What I meant is that Putin doesn't have plans to end this war, as Ukraine is only a path he is going down, which is to continue on to Europe. 
First of all, taking Baltic states, countries that were part of the USSR, and then other countries that had Soviet armies and were under Soviet influence. I have been saying this to our partners, including Mr. Schultz, that they might end up with Russian troops at their borders. But then we can certainly see that it would be World War III. If our negotiations fail, then we can confidently say that it's not by accident that he's asking for demands that will be rejected by Ukraine. He's setting demands which we cannot agree to before saying they simply didn't want peace. And then Russia will go full force towards the borders of European or NATO countries. It would be World War III. Um, if you if you were going to meet with Mr. Putin in 10 minutes, what, in yeah, in Kiev. Yeah. Uh, what, what would you do? It? What would you tell him? What will be your first I will try to cover everything perplexing and say everything that Ukrainian people think in detail. And if I had the opportunity, we would cover every topic. Will we resolve them all? No. But partially. Most important of which is to stop the war. And let them understand that by destroying us, he will only destroy himself. I don't want us to be known in history as a nation that doesn't exist. As a president, I don't want this destiny for our country and people. Mr. President, this is, this is the biggest uh, refugee crisis in, the, uh, in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, 10 million people left their homes inside Ukraine, three and a half million people are abroad. What would be your message to, to those people who, who are abroad and to, to people and countries who took them in? Everybody needs to become Ukrainian, at least temporarily to feel in their own skin, to know that it's a war and that you can lose everything, your life and everything that matters to you, to feel that pain, not just be concerned. When you are feeling, you will do what you can to stop this. Because people, no matter who they are and what they do, they still think about themselves first, about their life. So what they can do for their own life is to be Ukrainians.
зміниться свого життя, стануть українцями. Дякую. Щасливо. Дякую дуже багато. want to get a sense you're on the ground you're seeing how some of these uh these fights and resistance are going on the ground and you also have uh, access to this high level evaluation that there's a stalemate tell me tell me how you evaluate that statement against what you're seeing so right now we're seeing two kinds of resistance uh, we're seeing military resistance which is so far keeping russian forces from kiev uh, Russian forces have been kept back to the northern uh, suburbs of the city and they have not been able to advance in days. So we're seeing conventional military resistance and we're also seeing civil disobedience. We're seeing that in Kherson and Kherson is one of the only places where Russians actually occupy the, the, the city. They patrol, they patrol on foot, they've uh, imposed a, a kind of shadow government, but people are not accepting it. And Kherson was considered one of the more pro-Russian communities here. Before this war began, and I think this was one of the things that Vladimir Putin was counting on, there were deep divides here. There were divides between East and West. There were divides between uh, those who spoke Russian and those who speak uh, native Ukrainian. And Kherson was considered the closest to Russia, um, as, is, as was Mariupol. But if you look at what's happening in Mariupol, and if you look at what is happening in Kherson right now, there's real hatred for Russia. People are uh, swearing blood oaths. They are leaving the city if they can. They're being strip searched when they're leaving Mariupol as the guards check to see if they have some sort of Nazi uh, insignia tattooed, swastikas tattooed on their body. And in Kherson, they're standing up to gunfire. So the Russian plan, both from a hearts and minds campaign, if you will, a uh, plan to occupy and easily pacify areas that were thought to be pro-Russia. That's not working. And its conventional military plan to drive into the cities is not working for now. Let's talk a little bit more about Mariupol. At this point, uh, there's been an offer or request by Russia that Ukraine simply cede Mariupol. The Ukrainians have rejected that offer. But the idea that, that maybe the, Vladimir Putin is giving up on the idea of taking Kiev and the government and instead would be satisfied by more territorial gains. Explain that to us. Give me some context around that. So um, throughout this conflict, we've been guessing about Vladimir Putin's uh, intentions. And unfortunately, we've often been guessing them incorrectly. Uh, there was a camp that thought that Vladimir Putin wouldn't invade, and that camp included the Ukrainian government. It included President Zelensky, by the way, who thought right until the end that Russia wasn't going to launch a, a full-scale invasion. Uh, then there was a, a camp that maybe Putin would take a piece, that he would just take the Donbass, or maybe he would take a land bridge to Crimea. Now, if he wants a land bridge to Crimea, that would be able to connect the territory of Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed after it, it took it over uh, in 2014, then he would have to take the city of Mariupol and Kherson and a few other areas in, in, that, in that southern region along the Black Coast and the Sea of Azov. From Putin's perspective, that would give him a win. It would allow him to secure Crimea and secure the water supply to Crimea, which, which also flows through that area. But is that going to be enough? 
And if people misjudged Putin the first time, I think we would be foolish to allow ourselves to be fooled twice and assume that he would just be satisfied with a slice in the east, especially when his troops are continuing to dig in. There's new satellite images showing that the troops are still mobilizing around the borders of this country, particularly up in the north of Belarus. Uh, so it is not at all clear that he wants to only take Mariupol and would somehow be satisfied with that and walk away. I think those calculations, we were having those calculations uh, one of the other things. in the beginning, but now that he is in this war, it's yeah. not clear. So let's talk about, uh, in the, at the beginning, there was also a calculation, and, and uh, potentially not officially, but we heard there may have been an offer or a plan by the U.S. to get uh, Volodymyr Zelensky out of Kiev, either to western Ukraine, a place like Lviv or somewhere else that might have been safer, or even to Poland to have a, a government in exile. He refused to leave Kiev, as did his members of parliament and gov government officials. Uh, and, and Kiev still stands, and they are still in Kiev, and you are still in Kiev. We do know that there continued to be assaults on that city. There was a deadly assault overnight at a shopping mall. What is the situation on the ground uh, where you are in Kiev? So uh, there was also a big intelligence failure that I think we should acknowledge. There was, the U.S. correctly predicted that Vladimir Putin would do some sort of invasion, but they, the, the intelligence failure was that they thought the Ukrainian government was going to imminently collapse and that uh, Zelensky would have to become some Charles de Gaulle figure operating in exile when now he's still here and he's leading an effective resistance. Uh, you asked about the mood here in Kiev. It is a very strange city right now. Uh, there are two million people here, according to the mayor, give or take. Uh, most of them are men because uh, men are not allowed to leave this country. If you notice where you are, the lots of the refugees, it's, it's women, uh, children, and, and the elderly. The men are still here. There's, there's no real work, so to speak. Nothing is open. Uh, there's not uh, the ability to shop. So you have lots of men in their houses with no families, living presumably on crackers and salami. There's no alcohol in the city. The whole city has been declared dry by the mayor. Everyone is participating in, in some form in civil defense. Uh, people walk around in sort of militarized clothing with colored armbands around their, around their uh, upper arm, either yellow or blue, to show that they're loyal to the, to the army. There's checkpoints on the streets. Uh, you ask, you're asked for your papers every time you go through a checkpoint or often when you go through a checkpoint. It is a it harkens back to an earlier time when you are asked to see your papers every every place you go in a city full of men bracing for war. With Home Chef, you're not just.